0: From the University of Toronto's Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy, this is Pharmacy in Focus, an I'm Pharmacy podcast miniseries. I'm Mina Tadros. Pharmacy is one of the original and oldest pillars of healthcare, with origins deeply rooted in ancient civilizations. It has always been a vital component of how people seek health. When we think of old images of medicine men making potions for pharaohs to early apothecaries and herbalists in the modern-day pharmacy, the landscape has transformed significantly and over the last hundred years has adapted to societal needs, major scientific advancements and emerging healthcare challenges. Most interestingly, when you think about it, pharmacy is a global entity. There are pharmacies everywhere. Admittedly, one of my favorite things when I travel is to stop by pharmacies in different countries, that and different McDonald's, and see how they differ from our own. But even with this cemented place in society, pharmacy is continually challenged as a profession. In 2016, U.S. Representative Earl Carter, who's a pharmacist and a politician, penned a piece that argued that pharmacists were by far the most overtrained and underutilized professions. And this was a narrative that lasted for quite a bit, and this all seemed to have changed very recently. Pharmacy is having a moment. Not just in Canada or Ontario, but across the world. During the pandemic, and as part of the front line in the battle, the pharmacy profession stepped up. It underwent remarkable changes, and pharmacists emerge as front line heroes, playing a crucial role in supporting their communities throughout the pandemic. With their accessibility and expertise in medication management, pharmacists swiftly adapted to meet the evolving needs of patients and the healthcare system. They became a trusted source of information, providing guidance on COVID-19 prevention measures, symptom management, testing, vaccination efforts, you name it, they were there. Pharmacists even collaborated with public health agencies, offered immunization services. They helped and held massive vaccination clinics, and they contributed significantly to the vaccination campaigns around the world. To build on that momentum, we saw right here at home, a number of provinces further expand scope in many jurisdictions. Most notably, right here in Ontario, we saw the launch of 13 minor ailments allowing prescribing by pharmacists to help a strained system. And this felt like it came out of nowhere, but it didn't. This wasn't an overnight thing. This is also not the final destination for the profession. As healthcare systems around the world appear to be buckling, pharmacists are stepping up in more ways than one. This feels like a real moment for pharmacy, a moment 50 years in the making. So in this three episode mini series, we'll explore how pharmacy can help our healthcare system and the health of our patients. We wanna know what is a pharmacist? How should we be shaping the future of pharmacy practice and what does the future look like? To start this journey, I wanted to better understand what the current status quo is and what is the self-identity of a pharmacist. And that's what we're going to explore this first episode. To do this, we paid a visit to a practice-leading pharmacy owned and operated by Kristen Watt. Her pharmacy is located in beautiful Southampton, Ontario, on the shores of Lake Huron, just south of Sauble Beach and Tobermory. So we're, we're here at Kristen's Pharmacy. Right outside, sunny day, winter finally broke through. We're going to, we're going to walk in. So first thing you notice right away, there's three private rooms on the side to so the left hand side. Um, you know, some of the, a lot of, you know, typical OTCs and things like that, but it nicely kind of, lots of, lots of extras. We'll walk in the back. You guys mind if we come back I here? Mind I am a well, licensed pharmacist,
1: guys. <laughs> Great, I'm
0: leaving Par, for lunch. Part a. <laughs> I was gonna say that's not part of this deal. <laughs> I'm going for lunch. <laughs> awesome. All right. Do you guys mind if you say hello to you guys? My name is Kristen Watt. I am a
2: community pharmacist and pharmacy owner. I practice in Southampton, Ontario. Do a whole bunch of different things. I'm on the board of directors for PharmaChoice Choice Canada. I'm currently running for the board for OPA. I sit on the board of directors for the local residential hospice. I've done lots of advising during the COVID 19 pandemic. And primarily, I work in community pharmacy, which means I'm a generalist in providing pharmaceutical care to our community.
0: For the listeners, like what struck me about this pharmacy right away when we walk in um, is right when you walk into your left hand side are three offices and consultation rooms. Um, most pharmacies are lucky to have one. Mm -hmm. And, and when I asked where to interview you, can we set up in the dispensary? You said, no, I don't, I don't stand there. So it sounds like you've built this pharmacy a little differently. Maybe tell us about your vision of when you started, what you wanted to build and where are you now? Like,
2: Sure. We built in 2017. And what you're in right now is actually a reno. So we did a complete overhaul reno in 2021. Mm. Uh, So what we originally had was the dispensary to the right of the front door. And I was standing there and I was working in the dispensary at the time uh, doing I did all the data entry and counseling right at drop off. Yeah. so It was fantastic. Patients had really good access to the pharmacist. We could troubleshoot anything that was needed. And the key to that was having a technician work at the end of the packaging and distribution line to do all of the technical checking. Yeah. It was amazing. We changed our entire workflow with Kroll to make that happen. Yeah, But it got so that we were so busy that a pharmacist couldn't safely do data entry, counseling and uh, clinical checking of prescriptions. So I needed to add in more staff. And during the pandemic, I really saw the value of the consultations that we were providing. We were doing tons of consultations before and during the pandemic. And then we started doing even more. We had patients showing up here who are afraid to go to the emergency department for urinary tract infections before we could even prescribe for these patients. Yeah. So these are assessments I'm doing in my office. I can't prescribe. I'm faxing to the physician to make recommendations. Right. I needed space and time to be able to do that. So I needed to be removed from the dispensing aspect of my pharmacy. So to do so, we hired more more technicians and more staff and revamped the way that the store is shaped. And now I'm working in my office. I have spaces for other pharmacists to work in their office and all of the technical functions of distribution are handled by the dispensary team completely.
0: So walk us, because I think, I think this is like really unique, right? Like, um, and obviously you know that because I think you, you get invited to talk about this and like talk about your model for those, especially those that might not be a pharmacist or work in a pharmacy Most people are used to like they walk in, like, take us through a patient journey that walks through your door. They walk in, like, I'm, you know, I have a prescription, I just got it. When would they see you in a consultation? And how do you how does that patient journey begin the moment they get that prescription and walk through your door?
2: Right. I think it depends on what's the impetus for the patient journey. Is it a script in hand or is it a fax in? Because fewer than five percent of our scripts are actually script in hand. So let's say that's what it is. They come from Emerge. It's script in hand. They come into the pharmacy and they go to our drop off counter and they are seen by an assistant there. Their prescription is processed through the drop off. It's then processed and adjudicated by a technician who works off site. I have two technicians who log in securely and remotely to do all of our data entry. Mm -hmm. So they handle all of that piece. They handle all of the billing, all of that. We do not say 10 minutes for scripts here. It's not a safe way to practice. And it doesn't allow us to do everything that we need to do in a safe manner. Obviously, if things are urgent, we're working more quickly. But the point is we give them an estimated time that it will be ready. We definitely under promise and over deliver. That's our goal. Yeah. And the patients, um, then they wait. So if it's an urgent prescription, they're often waiting in the pharmacy. If not, they're coming back to pick it up. From the data entry and adjudication piece, it goes into the clinical check. So we're crow paperless, which means we can process this clinical check at any computer, any terminal within the pharmacy. So I'm doing that from my office. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the prescription clinically. Is this dose appropriate? Is the duration appropriate? Is the age, the weight? All of these things, are there there any interactions? Take care of all that. I sign off. It then goes to packaging, which is back in the dispensary. My uh, packaging staff will package the prescription and then put it up for my technical staff to check. It's then flagged for counseling. So when they check it and bag it, it goes in the drawer with a Ziploc bag. That's pretty standard in the industry. And a patient comes for pickup. They pick it up and they are told the pharmacist would like to speak to you. They're walked to my office. They come in. I'm handed everything and the patient actually sits down. So we're not standing in the pharmacy. There is nobody around us listening. It's a one-on-one conversation and I have access to their profile. And if needed, I can pull up their labs. So it ends up being a more lengthy conversation about the medication that they're taking, the interactions and all of those things at a particular time. If it's not based on a prescription drop-off, it's a fax in prescription, we'll often call the patients when they come in, then they go through the same journey of paying and coming to see me. And then if they're asking for a consultation, they're at the pharmacy counter as well. And those uh, interactions are more uh, about
0: generating those appointments that we do a lot. I want to go back to 2017 sure. when you first started and you decide I'm going to do things a little bit different. And that patient, they're like, the pharmacist is now going to see you. Okay. Yeah which is not something they've heard before. No. Like they're used to like, you're already back there. Maybe you have a lab coat on. Maybe if you're new age, you don't. I don't. And um, how did, like, did that take a little bit of teaching? Yeah. Like, how did people respond to that?
2: A lot. So a lot of patients were referred to us originally by their physicians, knowing what I could do clinically in the area from the long term care. They referred their patients to me. You know, go see this pharmacist. She had good success reducing falls at a nursing home. Maybe she can look at your meds. Right. Uh, But then a lot of patient teaching when I counsel somebody on a new medication, blood pressure, blood sugar, mental health, any of those medications. I always say, if this isn't going well, make sure you give me a call. I can help suggest alternatives to the physician. If you're having side effects, I can suggest alternatives or dose adjustments and things like that. That And they're like, you can. Yes, I can. Yeah. And the pandemic just accelerated the pace of that for us significantly because we were so accessible. I had a patient come in picking up her meds one day and said to her, how are you doing? She goes, I'm really not well. This antidepressant isn't thing. I just can't get into my doctor. This is just awful. And I said, sit down. Let's have a conversation. I suggested an alternative antidepressant for her. She said, I had no idea you could do this. This is amazing. Yeah. And then this is small town. People tell their friends if they're having trouble with their meds, they end up here because we are the trouble shooters and the problem solvers.
0: So do you. Okay. uh, there was something interesting you just said, which is that the doctor told them about you. Mm -hmm. So do you find that that lowers that threshold for them? being a little bit like taken aback, like if they show up and the doctors already told them like, this pharmacist is great and she's going to really help. Like, this is a part of my, your hair healthcare team versus I'm sure there's some patients who never heard anything from the doctor. And then you do this. Like, does that, does it make it easier?
2: It can. Uh, I think that the fact that I have the confidence of the physicians around helps on both ends. So whether or not they were referred to me by the doctor, but the doctor accepting my suggestions is enough validation for the patients. Patients trust their family care uh, physicians or nurse practitioners more than anybody else, for sure. So it definitely lends credibility, but they are very good at understanding Probably because they are hearing in the community that this is what we do, yeah. that, that I can be the initiator of that uh, consultation as well.
0: So when we think about the future of pharmacy, do you think that some pharmacists are going to do more scope and then some people are going to not want to do it? Like sure. I, when we chat with some people and some of my colleagues, they don't want to do all this.
2: And that's totally fine. That's the beauty of it. This is a profession. Not every physician is a neurosurgeon. You can completely tailor your practice to the way that you want to practice. There's no reason that everybody has to work under this model. I provide lots of cognitive services for patients who do not get their drugs from us. Absolutely. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think it's completely possible to decouple cognitive services from dispensing. Because I'm following up on things that are going into blister packs. And because we know the patients really well, we can be more nimble with those changes and things like that. But I can provide these services for patients who do not get their drugs from us. Definitely.
0: So if someone said the statement that you are practicing full scope, would you agree with that?
2: I would. I would. I think it's rare to see it and I push all the time. Uh, This week I had a friend who's a family physician text me and say, can you please help me learn how to write a script for Clavulin? Because everything I write, I get told it's wrong, but they're not telling me what to do. Mm -hmm. What do I do? So I did a thread on Twitter this morning and I did a a post in our community pharmacy Facebook group this week saying, hey, if you're seeing these scripts, it's within your scope to make the changes. Stop pushing back, use the information that you have." And go with it. Our scope is limited on Ontario and we want more, but very few are working at the top line right now. Yeah.
0: Do you think our training, like when you came out of the university trial, mm-hmm. you were trained to be full scope? Yes, I, I,
2: I'll never forget the day that I sat in uh, third year therapeutics and it was my turn to present meningitis mm-hmm. and I did not count any pills and I did not get any LU requests and I did not process any scripts. I stood up in front of the entire class and professor, uh, the visiting professor Olavo Fernandez, who works at UHN, I will never forget this yeah. and said, ceftriaxone and Banco IV. And he said, you got it. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, that is the level that we are trained at.
0: Right. So it's like, so you would, you would agree that like, generally we've trained people up to be ready to tackle this. So we're not actually utilizing them to their full Correct. potential. Absolutely. Where do you want to see things go?
2: Autonomous prescribing, bar none. Walk that us through that. would be the most ideal because then it gives every pharmacist the ability to work to the level that they want. You want to continue working in a dispensary at the end of an assembly line, checking prescriptions and counseling patients that's fine. You are still providing a service and a level of care. And then you can refer them to a pharmacist who is providing a different level of care if they need that all the way up to and including autonomous prescribing. The number of patients who don't have family physicians is astounding. And these patients need continued care. I'm not asking to diagnose, right? I mean, patients are coming to me already with a diagnosis of diabetes. I can see their A1C is 8.8%. Why do I need to ask permission to start an SGLT2 when they're not on it yet and they have stage three kidney disease? Like it makes complete sense for us. We know the prescribing cascades that are actually needed in certain circumstances and we're not able to use them. The number of requests that I send to a physician following a meds check saying, these are all the changes initial here that I get back with just the initials because they're like, Thank you. Yeah, there it is. There's all the work plus all the planned follow up. Autonomous prescribing is the way to go. That way it allows everybody to work at whatever level they are comfortable at, because this is a lot about comfort in your own abilities as well as staff support. So you can work at any level. And if you can't provide the service that the patient needs, you can refer them to a place that can. So what are we missing to get there? Uh, we're missing the allowance from ministry and OCP. Right. So, those are big ones that need to happen. We need to break down barriers between uh, levels of bureaucracy. We need to get OMA out of our way. Uh, they are a big barrier to our future. And they need only look to Alberta to see that the sky does not fall if physicians are not the only prescribers.
0: Besides politics. Mm-hmm. What's this, what, what in the system is what's holding back the system? Because, you know, one thing with minor ailments that I, you know, I've heard a lot from physicians is is about communication, access to information. Like, is all of that true? Like, you know, we already live like even between physicians, it's super siloed.
2: Right. And, and th- that's not a fault of pharmacy. And it also shouldn't be a reason to hold us back. We don't need to fix terrible systems before we can advance scope and improve patient care. Yeah. That would be a waste of our time and it will never happen. So we will never get to there. Like it's not possible to completely fix all of those systems. Clinical connect is a fantastic yes, resource. I was going to say,
0: you probably have access to clinical. Connect.
2: Oh yeah. And every yeah. pharmacy should. And if you're practicing without it, that's a very dangerous way to practice. Absolutely. Now. Uh, to think that for 10 years, I dispensed gabapentin without being able to check renal function or metformin. Right. right? We all got up in arms about Paxlovid a five day medication without having renal function, but we dispense metformin all the time without checking that, right? Like our heads aren't wrapped around this way of having this access to the knowledge. So that's really, really
0: important. If you imagine in the future, this idea that there's different sort of types of pharmacies that offer different services, that's gonna be very confusing for patients. For sure. To know where something is being offered, what kind of pharmacist there is, like maybe that's where we're going, where there's like, like you mentioned, like specialties or whatever. have you seen any lessons in minor ailments like not every pharmacy is doing it and our right? patients struggling to navigate that?
2: I don't think so. Patients are presenting at their primary pharmacy first. There's yep. our, we're seeing all of our patients when they can't get the answers that they're looking for. That's when they start to seek out other places and they're going to go by word of mouth Uh, referrals or from those other pharmacies. I don't think we need to credential pharmacists any differently. If you want to practice in different ways. Uh, I think that it's, I mean, people have access to all sorts of information on the internet. If I want to market myself as the clinically focused pharmacy that will provide holistic care for an entire patient and their family, that's going to be all over my website. Patients don't have trouble finding
0: us and physicians know we exist. So you don't have anybody coming in. That's like, Oh, I went to these other places. I thought they could do this because I heard it on the radio. And I'm glad you're doing
2: it. We definitely hear that, and uh, because what's on the radio right now isn't enough. Because you're seeing big box pushing this walk-ins all available, da 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 da. Yeah. But they're not staffing for it. And so when you talk about what's really the future of pharmacy, it's removing that fiduciary duty to shareholders and putting it back within the pharmacy yeah. to allow for better patient care.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I, I think we've heard a lot of stories about just like you know it's rolling out. Pretty like the numbers are awesome. They're great. Um, but not everywhere. No. Which is typical. It
2: is. And if you look at things like paxlovid prescribing rates as well as COVID vaccination rates, it is very typical. It depends on staff because and I'm I really applaud pharmacists who do don't do programs, who don't do vaccinations, who don't prescribe Paxlovid, who don't do minor ailments because they're not doing those because they don't want to. Most times they're not doing them because they can't. They don't have the staffing yeah. to support that. And they're identifying that patient safety is at risk. I'm not doing that. So that's yeah. a big kudos to our profession to know what, where your limit is.
0: Kristen's pharmacy was really doing some amazing things. And like many pharmacies across the country. They'd really taken the expanded scope by the horns to do more and more to help their patients. But one thing struck me in our conversations with Kristen was her comment around that not all pharmacies were going to do every single service. More importantly, myself as a pharmacist, I know that many of my colleagues don't all work in the same way. More importantly, many pharmacists work in a variety of different places. We have pharmacists working in hospitals, working in government, and even some, silly enough, end up in academia. I wanted to better understand, how do pharmacists identify? What does it mean to be a pharmacist? To explore this, I spoke with Dr. Jamie Keller. Dr. Keller is the Associate Dean of Academics at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy and a pharmacist herself. Her research interests are in the area of how do health professionals self-identify and what does it mean to be a pharmacist? I I went and did what everyone's doing these days, and I asked ChatGPT, um, what is a pharmacist?
1: Oh, I'm curious to know what you learned. So
0: give gave me this like really long spiel and I, maybe I'll read it to you sometime, but it's like, you know, a, uh, you know, as a clinician or a clinically educated person who, and it like describes all the different tasks that we all know that a pharmacist could potentially do. And then I pushed it and I said, make that a little tighter. And then I kept pushing it till the end. It said to me, a pharmacist is a drug expert who helps patients get the right drug. Is that what a pharmacist is?
1: I think that's one piece of what a pharmacist is. But I think it's more than that. You know, I think that we I think the drug expertise is something that certainly is something we all gravitate towards as pharmacists. It's an important part of what we do. But what happens when you're serving a patient that doesn't need a drug? Right. And so you don't get them the right drug because maybe there isn't one. Right. But that doesn't mean you haven't had to use your assessment knowledge or your skills to determine that a drug isn't the way to go. I also think pharmacists in communities, particularly smaller communities serve functions beyond drug expertise. Mm -hmm. They are often an advocate for patients. They're often a connection to um, different components of the community. And so again, that doesn't fall within drug expert yet. It's an extremely important role. I think drug expert doesn't necessarily clearly articulate the scientific background that many pharmacists have. And if you think about pharmacists that work in academia or within the pharmaceutical industry, many scientific jobs are actually pharmacists as well. Mm -hmm. And so, and they may or may not use um, all of their drug expertise in those roles. I think it depends. And so this idea that you can define a profession by any one descriptor, I think is where I get challenged because it starts to think, For me, it starts to create the idea that there's only one way to be something. And pharmacists as a profession have a lot of things in common, sure. But there's also our own personalities and our own identities that are part of who we are. And we integrate those things into how we practice, into how we think about pharmacy. And so I struggle a lot when we get into these very singular definitions of what it means to be a pharmacist, because I think it's different for all of us. And I think all of the ways we practice are valuable and serve society in some way.
0: Can I push you on this a little bit? Sure. So not like in the way that I disagree and it's good to know that the AI overlords aren't always right. Um, (laughs) So, so, you know, like one thing that, so in, in a previous role, like one of the things I was involved in was like helping define what the minor elements in Ontario would look like. And I quickly learned about the laws that define a pharmacist role mm-hmm. of what we are or not able to do within our scope. Right. Which felt like a boxing in. So one thing that became very abundantly clear that diagnosis is not in our by law in Ontario in our scope. Yes. Are how does that with what you call like a, the identity of a pharmacist and then this sort of like boxing in of what you're allowed or not allowed to do? How do those, what is that interplay like? Because. I'm being told by in law that as a pharmacist here, I'm allowed to dispense. I'm allowed to inject. I'm allowed to uh, write a prescription, amend a prescription, do all these kind of tasks. And those tasks define what I do day to day. Mm -hmm. Does that not shape our identity in some way? Like, has someone already not defined it?
1: I think for sure. And when I think about how I study identity, it's actually looking at all of those things. right? So I think about identity as a social construct. And who we are and who we can be is determined by the social world that we interact with. And in order to interact with the social world, you need to interact through things like policies, through Mm -hmm. bylaws, through things that govern what we can embody and what we can't. And so that does actually the political structure and the powers of the politics around practice actually does impact our identity in a very real way. Right. And very few people actually study it at that level. But it's relevant because where we often see identity work focused is on the individual. So individual psychological development theory as an individual, but also as a individual becoming a professional. Mm -hmm. And the psychological pieces, I think people gravitate to because it makes sense. We also think about it from a socialization perspective and, and how we socialize folks into different professions. And I think that makes sense. But we often don't think about the socio, cultural and political contexts that govern who we can be. And if you don't take those into account, I think you start to have problems that we actually see in our profession Mm -hmm. where we start to say, well, we have all of these expanded scope activities. Yet some pharmacists aren't doing them. Right. Or we're not doing X, Y and Z. Well, in some cases, we're not because we can't. Because they're not within a policy or a box
0: that that's
1: not allowed for us because some of our work environments don't allow us to embody different ways of being based on a number of of things within potentially the corporate or organizational structure that folks work within. But when you ignore those bigger drivers around identity, what we see happen is we blame individual pharmacists and we say things like they don't have an identity or our profession doesn't have an identity. I don't actually agree with that. I think that they can't embody an identity that in many cases we've said is the right way to practice and when you can't do that because of laws, policies, yeah. organizational culture, folks internalize that as somehow I'm not the right kind of pharmacist and then we see complacency, job dissatisfaction, pipeline issues and we see attrition and yeah. folks leaving the profession to do something else.
0: So is there so if I can say back to you so what you're saying is that there's who we want to be, or, or someone's determining what we should be Mm -hmm. and what we are. And they're not aligned. Not always. Not always. And so who's deciding what we should be? Like, are you, is that the government and the health system making demands of us saying you should be this because we need you or also keeping us down, right? Like in some ways there's been people pushing for expanded scope and for years before these last few years, the government wasn't allowing that. Or is it educators that are defining what you know, is it people in the university saying this is what you should be? And then they get out into the real world. Like you hear that, you know, they told us I could do all these things. And then I go out in the real world and I can't do any of those things.
1: I think there's multiple things at play there. I think that, again, I use Foucaultian discourse analysis as my method of choice for mm-hmm. my work on identity. And I think what that does is that it focuses you on thinking about who's saying what, when. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about government or policies, they're being driven by somebody's agenda. Right. And so who are the powerful voices? And now I haven't studied this specifically at that level. And so um, what I say is an extrapolation of some of my work that if you started to poke around, what I would expect you see are powerful groups that have strong voices that have strong power within government structures to control scope. Yeah. I would say probably as a profession, medicine has a lot of power and a lot of vested interest in controlling elements of practice right. that pharmacists are probably well-suited to do. But who has more power at any given time? Those things certainly drive what is possible for us to be. And I think we need to embrace that and accept that and figure out where we fit. I also think, though, that it opens up ways for us to think about being different things. We tend to chase expanded scope. We tend to chase prescribing rights as do many other professions. Mm -hmm. And I would ask why we seem to chase the things that bring us closer to medicine because of the power that they hold within the healthcare hierarchy. And so I often say, if we stopped chasing these things, what else could we see as possible for pharmacists? Where else could we serve a purpose? And I think that we miss opportunities for us to serve society by focusing so heavily on specific aspects of clinical practice. And so, again, that's not to dismiss or to say we shouldn't focus on these things. It's to say, what else is out there? What's possible for us to be if we think bigger and, and broader and we start to attack some of the structures that keep us in boxes and help us thinking about, well, where else can we move? Not to give up one. But to, again, expand how we're serving people.
0: There's multiple identities. Absolutely. But to allow the space for that, do we not need to push the envelope so that we create space for pharmacists to develop multiple identities within the space versus trying to make it as homogenous as possible?
1: Absolutely. So I'm I will say wholeheartedly, I'm very much in opposition to all of the, the large groups, be it pharmacy, medicine, nursing yeah. or other that's. Moving towards these ideas around unified identities. Okay. This notion that identity formation is becoming a goal of medical education or health professions education is frightening to me because it implies that there's some tick box that you can check off when you graduate that says I formed said pharmacist identity, right. which doesn't make any sense to me. And identity same tick is box, a unique like teaching thing. someone
0: ethics, right? Exactly.
1: And to me, they're fundamentally different. Right, Professionalism and professional behavior are actions and things that we do. Mm-hmm. And identity is who we are. And we don't assess that. We, we guide people along a journey to integrate being a pharmacist into who they are as a human being. And there's an integration of, of self yeah. along that education journey. And so I'm not a fan of these ideas around adding identity to accreditation standards, for example. I don't think it makes any sense. What I do think, though, is that there are multiple ways of being a pharmacist, all of them being important and legitimate, and people will gravitate towards them based on a number of things, including who they are as individuals.
0: Yeah. How much of this is based on the complexity of the tasks? How much of this is based on who that task overlaps with like other professions that can also do these same things. Like, I wonder if we looked at like medicine as more and more professions were allowed to vaccinate Mm -hmm. and inject, does that become less interesting to them because it doesn't define their identity versus like dispensing as we have more expanded scope for pharmacy technicians, does that make it for pharmacists feel like how much of it is that and how much of it is just like the complexity of what goes into it that kind of attracts people to one direction or not.
1: I'm sure there's an element of that that must factor into it. I haven't looked at it specifically because I think all of these things are so very nuanced, but I'm not sure that that in and of itself can explain all of the different things that we see. And I think some of it's rooted in language. And so as an example, I've never heard a physician in all of my many years as a pharmacist tell me that they're a clinical doctor Yes. ever. I'm a doctor, I'm a, Goes a without saying. psychiatrist, I'm yeah. a whatever. But ultimately the fundamental common denominator for all of them is I'm a physician. And often that's what they say. Sometimes I don't even tell you their specialty. Mm-hmm. Yet we've created a whole group of pharmacists that say I'm clinical pharmacist. What is that? We're all graduating with the same.
0: Right. I, I, I've actually had a problem with that because it's a way of them.
1: Creating a hierarchy.
0: Right. And somehow it, and people talk about this in pharmacy all the time where it's like we're harder on each other right and we're not a unified front rather than like you know than defending what a pharmacist is like internally right like we kind of bring each other down if you know like to boil it down to some kind of
1: right but i think it's problematic because that means that a pharmacist doesn't have an identity if we don't add that clinical piece to it right, right? like it's it's there's something there that That makes us somehow better than someone who just says, I'm a pharmacist. Right. By principle, I tell people I'm a pharmacist. When I gave my introduction, I said, I'm a pharmacist. I spent my entire career in a hospital. But that doesn't make me a different or better pharmacist than somebody that chose a different career path. Ultimately, we get the same license in Canada. Wherever you're licensed to practice, we are pharmacists. Right. And I struggle with that because we've created, again, students that are going out with entry to practice PharmDs, which is great. I mean, I think we all have solid curriculums, you know, across North America where we're where we have the the different credentials now for all sorts of reasons. But somebody that's exiting on day one is still a novice pharmacist, whether they have an entry level PharmD or not. Yet somehow that degree for many of them implies that they're somehow more clinical than a pharmacist that's worked for 20 years because they have a BSc. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It is. Yet that's the thing that we do. I've heard other pharmacists come up to me at conferences where I've given a talk and they'll introduce themselves as I'm just a pharmacist at X or I'm just a staff pharmacist.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, to me, that's horrific. You are a pharmacist. Right. You are a staff pharmacist, if that's the title that's used. But this idea that we're just something because we haven't embodied or embraced that clinician identity Mm -hmm. is problematic to us as a profession. And it goes back to a unified whole. And it's not about saying that we all do these things to get us to that unified whole. It's just about accepting that it's okay to be a pharmacist and tell someone that you're a pharmacist and all of the wonderful things that come with that. And so I do struggle a lot with because language is powerful and that clinical piece is something that we've gravitated strongly towards to the point that we have to vocalize it. And I'm not sure that's the way forward. I think it's potentially harmful.
0: Pharmacy, like many healthcare professions, is extremely fulfilling and has a place and a rich history, but the pandemic has highlighted many challenges that it's facing. On the positive side, pharmacists serve as medication experts, optimizing therapy, ensuring patient safety, and providing accessible care. They've seen rapid growth in what they can do. However, challenges arise from increasing workloads, administrative burden, and many concerns with how much more they can take on. As the profession evolves, pharmacists are embracing expanded roles, advocating for more and further policy changes and integrating digital health into the care that they're providing. But it became clear pharmacy is not a one-trick pony. With a moving identity that will allow flexibility for what pharmacy can, should, and will be. A profession that is not just limited to the dispensing of medications, but rather a profession that is hyper-challenged and hyper-changing and shaping and improving the health of patients around the world. We'll build on this over the next two episodes as we explore how do we prepare for these adaptive pharmacists of the future and what does the future of pharmacy look like? This episode of the I'm Pharmacy podcast was produced by Steve Southon, Kate Richards, and me, Mina Tadros. Musical accompaniment was from Steve Southon and Diego Martinez. This episode was edited by Steve Southon. Special thanks to Kristen Watt and Dr. Jamie Keller. Just a quick reminder, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you don't mind, leave us a five-star review. We'll be dropping new episodes every single month. So make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and keep asking questions. Catch you at the next episode.